0: It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, Is God Happy With My Attitude? Coming up in this episode, some of Jesus' most recognized teachings are the Beatitudes, As with many things that become commonly known, these teachings are often watered down and accepted as nice, inspirational thoughts. The reality is, these Beatitudes are solid
1: and profound foundations for life. Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. It's good to be here. And Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us.
2: Hi, gentlemen. Happy to be here.
1: Jonathan, what is our theme text for today's episode?
0: Matthew 5, 1 and 2. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them.
1: Arguably, the most well-known sermon in the world is the Sermon on the Mount, delivered by Jesus over 2,000 years ago on a mountainside near the Lake of Gennesaret and Capernaum. It was his longest recorded sermon and covered important topics like loving your enemies, anger and murder, adultery and divorce, how to fast, and laying up treasures in heaven. His audience was his disciples, plus a curious crowd attracted by his ability to perform wondrous miracles. The sermon began with several deceptively simple, blessed statements called the Beatitudes. These statements are actually a profound foundation for all of Jesus' teachings. They show us not only how to frame our view of life, they also show us how we're to treat those around us with godly grace. So something simple is something profound. The simple theme of these Beatitudes, the simple, simple theme of these is based on the idea of being blessed. Jonathan, what does that mean?
0: Blessed means supremely blessed, by
1: extension, fortunate, well off. Okay, so the meaning of this word is far deeper than simple happiness. In every use in the New Testament, it always is tied into those who serve God, no matter what the circumstances, or it describes God himself. When we think blessed, we need to think of being touched or guided by God's favor, which means we personally have God's attention. Now, now, pause there for a second. This is a, a sila moment. We personally have God's attention. That's what it means to be supremely blessed.
0: Rick, your Uncle Steve used to call these the be attitudes because they describe the attitude we're supposed to have <laughs> and person we are to be. Mm
2: -hmm. And, you know, you said about it's more than happy, you know, happy is a mood based on our circumstances. But according to the Amplified Bible, blessed is a spiritually prosperous that is with life, joy and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of their
1: outward conditions. So it's much deeper, as you said. It is. And and it's profound. So when you think of the Sermon on the Mount and you think of the Beatitudes, think of the first word, blessed, and let that set the stage for everything else to come. These Beatitudes are, are an early teaching in Jesus' ministry. They, they set a specific tone of love and compassion and humility, and they separate Jesus' teachings from all others of the day. Uh, Jonathan, let's just go through the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verses 3 to 9.
0: Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle
2: The message of this sermon was so different from what the people were hearing from their religious leaders of the day. They had been taught to hold in high regard and try to copy those who were rich, learned, powerful, influential. And things haven't changed much, have they? So here, Jesus sets forth the reverse.
1: So it's an entirely different perspective that we're looking at. So now, 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 now we, we've got to put this all in perspective. So what's the next question here? Well, oh, Rick, who was the primary audience? The primary audience is probably not what most people think it was. And and it the, the, the context describes that for us very, very simply. Matthew 5, Jonathan verses 1 and 2, these are actually our theme scriptures.
0: When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he had sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying...
1: So we know that he was addressing his disciples, even though others could hear, and we know that because that's what it said there. But we know further because of what he said immediately after all of the blessed statements. So we're going to fast forward then a little bit beyond the Beatitudes and a few scriptures after to Matthew 5, verses 13 and 14.
0: You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Well, we just read, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So Jesus was obviously speaking to his disciples. And if we are followers of Christ, he's also speaking to us. We are the uh, preservation for all the world now and the future kingdom.
2: The Beatitudes were so rich in content that they contained lessons for everyone who heard them at the time, and those who have considered them through the ages, but they clearly hold special meaning for these faithful followers of Jesus, and hopefully that's us.
1: And, And that's the point. So the focus here is on the faithful followers of Jesus when he gives these Beatitudes. So here's the thing. Whenever Jesus used this word, blessed, he always addressed those who followed him. Every single time he used that word, it was to those who followed him. Interestingly, Jesus' last blessed teaching before his crucifixion was another foundational principle. Let's go to the end of Jesus' life, just the night before his crucifixion, John 13, verses 14 through 17.
0: If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example of, That you should also do as i did to you truly truly i say to you a slave is not greater than his master nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him if you know these things you are blessed if you do them
2: wait so you're saying jesus gave us a bookend of blessings
1: he did this blessedness this profound blessing this this focus from god himself comes at the beginning of his ministry when he's talking to his disciples, and the last night he has time with them, he says to them, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So yes, it is an encompassing teaching for us. This is one of the many reasons we need to truly pay attention to these Beatitudes. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to review each Beatitude from actually from three different angles. First, we're going to be looking at some very short readings from the book Moments with the Savior by Ken Geyer. It's a wonderful, wonderful book showing how the Beatitudes provide us with a word photograph, if you will, of Jesus.
0: And second, we're going to understand the sense of empty required by the true disciple of Christ in order to copy the Master.
2: And third, we're going to see how each beatitude is a cumulative stepping stone to the next and why each foundational lesson is necessary for our
1: development. So, as we go through these beatitudes, we're really going to work hard at developing them step by step by step because they are much more much more than just inspirational statements. They're foundational statements for a true Christian life. So first we go to uh, an excerpt from the book Moments with the Savior by Ken Geyer describing Jesus.
3: We have no description of what Jesus looked like or sounded like. We don't know the color of his hair or how tall he was or what he weighed. The closest description we have is the mosaic that Matthew inlaid in his Gospel, the Beatitudes. The fragments, so intricately fitted together, form a composite of the character of Christ. As we stare transfixed at this sublime work of art, the mosaic stares back, searching our soul. And in a way only great art can, it speaks to us. Its still small voice whispers of all we were meant to be, and all, by God's grace, we might become. The voice entices us to submit to the artist, but before we undertake to become the artist's work, we must understand the artist's way. When the father begins crafting character, a crushing must first take place, not because he's a temperamental artist who's angry with his work, but because the raw materials for his art come from a broken heart. The heart may be broken from a blow by the hard circumstances of life, from a fist of the enemy, or sometimes from the very hand of the artist himself. But once the shattering takes place, it is his hand that reaches into our brokenness to pick up the pieces. And piece by painstaking piece, he fits them together in such a way as to form the likeness of the son he so dearly loves.
2: Wow, that's beautiful. And as followers of Jesus, we're supposed to copy his character, and here we're given different views of each part of his character. So it's like a photographer who wants to show you all the details of his subject. They're going to take pictures from the front, the right side, left side, rear, angles. This is what we find in the Beatitudes, the different features of Jesus so we could see who he was. Isn't that beautiful?
1: So we're taking a look at the Beatitudes as a picture of Jesus, and then we're looking at ourselves. So Jonathan, what's next?
0: Well, our second way of looking at the Beatitudes is understanding the sense of empty required to be the true disciple of Christ in order to copy the Master.
1: So what, what do we mean, the sense of empty? Well, here's what we know. We know that Jesus emptied himself on several levels to be the Messiah that the world needed. He emptied himself of his life and authority on the spiritual plane of existence. We know that because that's plainly stated in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7.
0: Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant,
1: and being made in the likeness of man. He emptied himself. He took himself out of that spiritual realm and voluntarily went and became a man. He emptied himself uh, of that spiritual authority so he could do what the Father's will was. So when we understand Jesus emptying himself, we have to look at ourselves. Now, he went further than that. He also emptied himself of his earthly will to do the will of God. We see that in John chapter 6, verse 38.
0: For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of
1: him who sent me. Simple statement. I came to do what? Only what God would have me to do. So when we look at the Beatitudes in relation to emptying, we can see this this, this, this picture of Jesus first. These Beatitudes are a clear picture, a crystal clear picture of who Jesus was and is. And if we see it that way, then surely we should see those Beatitudes through the eyes of emptying ourselves so we might be filled and blessed as he is.
0: Well, what do we have to empty as it applies to us?
2: Well, again, we're to be a representation of Jesus. So we're going to empty self and fill with Christ. It's not about what we are, but what God through Jesus can make of us. And in order to know righteousness, we have to be empty in the sense of being teachable.
1: So there's a lot of emptying that we need to do. As followers of Christ. And so as we look at the Beatitudes, and we look at being blessed, let's think about emptying ourselves and how to put that into perspective. So Julie, what's that third perspective now we want to just touch on here?
2: We're going to see how each Beatitude is a cumulative stepping stone to the next and why each foundational ne- lesson is necessary for our development.
1: So each Beatitude becomes a cumulative stepping stone. Jesus was very intentional in listing these Beatitudes as the very first teachings of this Sermon on the Mount. He was laying a foundation for our lives and for the rest of the teachings that that would be built upon them. Each beatitude is a foundation for the next beatitude. And seeing them this way provides us with cumulative steps towards Christ-likeness.
2: So remember, they're not sequential. They're not just randomly thrown out at us. These are cumulative steps on how we reach higher altitudes of spiritual life. And I've heard this called spiritual mountain climbing. Without the steps at the bottom, they all topple. So intentionally practicing the Beatitudes will contribute to our spiritual
1: transformation.
0: Well, our attitude determines our altitude.
1: <laughs> and, and, and as Christians, <laughs> that's, that's such a basic principle, And remember, putting them in order. They're in order for a reason. They're not random. They're specific. They're clear. They're profound. And they are a picture of Jesus as well. So, Jonathan, as we wrap this up, becoming one who can be blessed. What do we have?
0: As a whole, the Beatitudes provide us with the necessary ingredients to have others see Jesus in us. Each and every Beatitude plays a vital role in our character. And we can only truly reflect Jesus when they are all in place. This is a
1: blessed
0: way to live.
1: Okay, so we can truly reflect Jesus when they're all in place. Well, we've got a lot of work to do because there's a lot here in these seven Beatitudes. And so, you know, it's, it's really amazing how such a seemingly simple list of things can be the recipe for complete personal transformation.
0: What is the first foundational beatitude message of Jesus? Where does our Christian maturity begin?
1: No conversation about Christianity, as a matter of fact, no conversation about any faithful person of the Bible is ever complete unless this first foundational beatitude is firmly recognized. So we have to start at the beginning. In every case, without exception, anyone who can be ultimately blessed of God, must have a deeply humble spirit. And that's where the Beatitudes begin, with a deeply humble spirit. But Jonathan, let's go back to Matthew 5, 3 for the first of the Beatitudes.
0: Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, the word poor here literally means a beggar or a pauper. The word for spirit is the word for current of air or breath, and typically denotes unseen power, as in God's Holy Spirit.
1: Okay, so we've got the word for pauper and the word for spirit, power, unseen power, and so forth. To be poor in spirit is to be severely lacking in the ego of self-spirit. To be poor in spirit is is to be humble. And we talk about the ego of self-spirit. You've probably heard the saying along the way, well, you know that guy, he has an air of superiority about him, an air, the power, the puffing up, the strength, the unseen strength. That's what we're talking about. It's a lack of the ego of that air of superiority, that self-spirit.
2: I've heard this definition of humility, that it's not thinking of ourselves more highly nor more lowly than we ought to think, but to soberly consider ourselves in the full light of our talents, abilities, and weaknesses. It's really being honest with ourselves.
1: And that's hard to do that's hard to do because we oftentimes look at our faults and we magnify our faults and we're not we don't want to look at our our whatever talents or abilities we may have because like well i don't want to be proud well you're not humble if you don't recognize who you are in its totality just think about that let's let's go back to a look at jesus own humility with a very short excerpt from moments with the savior again by ken Geyer.
3: here is what he looked like he was poor in spirit he impoverished himself, laying aside the robes of heaven for the rags of our humanity. He did so in order to serve us and to
1: show what it means to be fully human. Laying aside the robes of that spirituality. And he, he put himself down into a very low state. And this reminds us of Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 and 4.
0: He was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted.
1: Imagine a prophecy that says the Son of God will be reduced to a man who's looking at, looked upon by the masses as smitten of God. Uh, as stricken, as people that, as a man that people hide their face from. You can see that Jesus had no shadow of that self-spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the deeply humble, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus taught us by who he was. So for humility, seeing yourself as you truly are, Julie, just like you said, your, your talents and your faults, all of it, is always, always, no matter where in the Bible, it's always biblically important. For instance, from the Old Testament, we have Micah chapter 6, verse 8.
0: He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God.
1: All right. And it's a very famous scripture. A lot of people now walk humbly with your God walk with a, a clear assessment of who and what you are so you can follow godliness. In the New Testament, humility is just as important. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6.
0: And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves
1: under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. So, this is interesting because it's, it's matching our humility with the mighty hand of God. And what this is really teaching us is true humility always begins to find its perspective when it's in relation to the greatness of God. That's how you find true humility. You start with the comparison of the greatness of God, and you build from there.
0: Remember, our second angle question is, how do we apply the sense of being empty as a true disciple of Christ in relation to poor in
1: spirit so we've looked at how jesus emptied himself we looked at how he emptied himself on multiple occasions to do the job that god gave him to do so for us how do we apply this sense of being empty uh, in relation to this poor in spirit to this humility well the blessed gift from god related to humility in the beatitude it says for theirs is the kingdom of heaven so this blessed gift is inheriting the kingdom of heaven let's take a look at first corinthians chapter 1 verses 26 through 29 and in it we're going to look at the the reward if you will but also the pathway to that reward
0: for consider your calling brethren that there are not many wise according to the flesh not many mighty not many noble but god has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and god has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God.
1: So that no man may boast before God. God's chosen the weak things and the base things for this incredibly high calling for the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. It's only by being empty that we can be filled there's no room otherwise. If I've got all of me, there's no room for godliness. It just doesn't fit. Humility recognizes the integrity of not being filled with things that are not true to ourselves and therefore not honest before God. There's a lot to the emptying to be able to truly be humble, to be poor in spirit, and therefore inherit the kingdom of heaven. Another scripture on this, Luke twelve twenty nine to 32 and do not
0: seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom.
2: So being poor in spirit uh, might include being stripped of our desire for recognition in the eyes of others. Maybe we've been searching for deeper meaning in life, but sense that something is missing, some type of void we can't fill. And when we stop always searching for that next big thing to make us happy with what the world has to offer, it's in this state of humble empty we come to Jesus. And we realize that we can be filled with the prospect of something bigger, the kingdom of heaven, but humble empty. I like that.
0: And we must realize our own emptiness before God can work with us. This is the opposite of arrogance. We have to acknowledge our own spiritual insufficiency, our nothingness before God. We can't make progress in our walk with God unless we first realize our need for him.
1: And again, realizing your need for God does not negate recognizing a gift or a talent that God has given you. On the other hand, your need for God is enhanced when you recognize the abilities and talents he may have given you to say, what do I do with this? How does this actually work to honor you? So let's, when we talk about humility, I always worry that we're gonna be this this beating ourselves to a pulp and then be worthless for anybody. And that's not what humility is. The humility here is understanding what God has given us, both in the negative and the positive, to say, How can I glorify him? How can I be empty so that I can be filled with his grace, his spirit, his direction, and his will? Julie, what's next?
2: Yeah, how does being poor in spirit, being humble, fit into the cumulative steps of the beatitudes? And I think that recognition of our need is the starting point. You know, the foundation of our character can't be proud, haughty, self-conceited. And if you think about it, the life of sacrifice that's required by a faithful follower of Jesus, isn't gonna appeal to a proud person anyway. Earthly wisdom says, hold up your head, show others why they should think so well of you, bend the truth if you have to, fake it till you make it. And we need on the other side, as you were saying, this humble appreciation of our own deficiencies, lack of our own wisdom in order to have that right attitude of heart to receive the wisdom of God.
0: And it's not what we are, but what God can make of us that is worth appreciating and loving.
2: That's right. We look at it through that lens. And I I, I found a great quote. John Newton, he wrote the song Amazing Grace. He was once a slave trader. And near the end of his life, as his faculties were diminishing, he said this quote, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. And a great sinner can appreciate the depth of redemption that our Lord has provided. And he suffered and died even for those of us who have done terrible
1: things. And that's so true. It's so true. And humility is such an important basis. So when we look at the, this, this word picture of Jesus, we see humility first, poor in spirit, and, 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 and inheriting the kingdom of heaven. And for us, the same thing, poor in spirit, that has got to be the beginning. So this is a foundation, but let's go even further. Every strong and broad foundation needs footings and there is no better way for a disciple of Christ to bear the weight of being Christ-like and the blessings of God's personal attention than humility. We're looking at humility as a footing, and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Jonathan, let's first go to James chapter 2, verse 5.
0: Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him?
1: the poor of this world, the, the, those who don't have a lot, those who are not well-recognized, the humble. That's what he's talking about. And so humility, again, is, is even more important than a foundation. For, 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 for broad foundations, you need footings. A footing is something that's dug beneath the foundation on the corners and, and in strategic places so the foundation, as the, the earth settles, won't crack. You have these footings to hold the foundation solid. Humility blessed are the poor in spirit, is the footing for the foundation to become truly Christ-like.
0: Well, is it possible to feel good about yourself and be humble at the same time?
1: Yes. And, And, you know, again, Jonathan, I'm glad you asked again, because this is an important point. We need to recognize that humility is not saying, I am absolutely worthless. There's nothing good in me. I mean, John Newton the slave trader. Had he taken that attitude, he wouldn't have been able to turn his life around. He wouldn't have been able to stand up. He wouldn't have been able to stand against the slave trade. He wouldn't have been able to do the amazing things he did at the end of his life because he did such horrible things earlier. He recognized the grace of God in him and the power he had to do something with it. We too must do the same.
2: And that reminds me of the Apostle Paul, all the horrific things that he did as Saul. If that would have influenced him, he would never have been able to take one step forward and be the great apostle that he was.
1: Right. And you look at that and say, well, didn't he feel bad? Of course he did. It made him work harder. It made him be more focused, more spiritual. So true poor in spirit, true humility is the basis for the basis of everything. That the Beatitudes have to teach. So Jonathan, becoming one who can be blessed, what do we have here?
0: To be truly blessed of God is not possible without a genuinely humble spirit that recognizes our abilities and our faults. Genuine humility is only possible when our point of reference begins with honoring God, and taking to heart our sinful nature and need for Jesus.
1: We have to start somewhere. So if you're looking at humility and saying, how do I become more humble? The first thing to do is compare yourself to the Father.
0: I think there's a great scripture that relates. It's Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor.
1: And, you know, that is such an important aspect of this. The humble spirit is what obtains honor. That's what Jesus had, and look at the honor he received. That's what we need to strive for as we look to take these beatitudes and apply them to ourselves, one at a time, building on the foundation that Jesus told us how to build. You know, it seems like no matter how much you say about humility, there's always room for more development and more learning.
0: With humility as our necessary footing, What will come next in the building of our Christian character? The next
1: beatitude is about mourning. And at first glance, that doesn't seem to fit into the building of our Christ-like characters. I mean, we have to be grieving to be like Jesus? That would be depressing. The point here is not focusing on being sad. Rather, the point is focusing on embracing whatever grief we have in faith. And this is important because we all face grief. We all face mourning. We all face loss. We're going to expand that in a moment. But the the key here is embracing whatever that grief is in faith that we can be comforted. And Jonathan, that's what Matthew 5, 4, the second beatitude says. Let's read it.
0: Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And Rick, that word for mourn means to grieve.
1: Okay, so... This mourning that we're talking about, this grieving can be for many, many reasons. From grieving over the loss of loved ones to grieving over our own personal sins to grieving over the worsening of the sin-sick world and its conditions, grieving is healthy and productive, especially in the context of the gospel. But we have to be sure that our grieving is appropriately focused. Otherwise, that healthy and productiveness really doesn't work out so well.
2: And I'd like to to refer you to an older episode, 1011. It was very special and moving, called How Do You Find Your Way Through Grief? Don't miss that one. Type 1011 in the search bar at christianquestions.com or in the free Christian Questions app in your app store.
1: Okay, so blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's go back to looking at Jesus' own grieving, again, an excerpt from Moments with the Savior, by Ken Geyer. He mourned. He
3: was, as Isaiah prophesied, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, crying over the grave of a friend, weeping over the fate of a nation. In his face, we see brows furrowed by the hard plow of the world's pain, and beneath those brows, eyes brimming with unfathomable heartache.
1: So when you look at Jesus, do you see someone who's grieving? Most of the time we don't. Most of the time we see the teacher, the wisdom, the power, the strength, the compassion, the leadership. But there's something else there as well. Jesus' grieving over the sins of the world began long before he came to be the ransom. We get a hint of that in Isaiah prophecy, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 through 10.
0: Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed.
2: And then the reading had said, crying over the grave of a friend. That's John 1135, the shortest scripture in the Bible. Jesus wept this is remarkable because even though he knew he was going to momentarily raise Lazarus from the dead, he still allowed himself to feel the same depth of grief as Lazarus's family. And there's no doubt that he understands when we feel that same heartache.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, for Jesus to feel the loss, he wasn't weeping just because everybody else was weeping. He was weeping because he hurt him, himself. He hurt. You know, you think about the closeness between Lazarus and Jesus, and he stayed at his house so many times up to this point, and I've just lost my close friend. I mean, the, the, the sickness of death became very real to him in a very different way than in, with other scriptures. So when he wept, you can feel the grief, the loss, even though he had the power by God to resurrect him. So, you know, you see this incredible, incredible rounded character. And that's why he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus' grieving was also over the nation of Israel. And that was punctuated by the rejection of him. And so we, we have Jesus grieving over the sin-sick world, Jesus grieving over the loss of a friend. And now in Matthew 23, 37 to 39, Jesus grieving over Israel.
0: Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.
1: So you see him having to let them go. Now think about this. This is right after Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus is bestowing the woes upon the Pharisees. Woe upon you hypocrites. And he just would lay into them again and again all the horrible things they were doing in the name of God. And after doing that, what's his reaction? I just so wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chickens, but you wouldn't listen. Listen. And now you're out of time. So now, and it was for a time, according to prophecy, your house is left to you desolate. Feel the grief. And when you realize the grief that Jesus had, you go back and see how hard he was on the Pharisees, and you realize that wasn't to beat them down. That was to save them. That was to pull them out of the mire because he loved them. So he grieved deeply over Israel's rejection of him. So we can see Jesus' picture of grief, and it really does show us who he was.
0: How do we apply the sense of being empty as a true disciple of Christ in relation to mourning?
2: So mourning implies there's a loss. It's another form of empty. And it could be the loss of a loved one. It could be the loss of faith, friendship, job. Maybe we lose our social status, our earthly possessions even, or our dreams. And many of us mourn what might have been. And we mourn when we realize how far we come short of God's perfect standards. And in a bigger sense, I think we all mourn for those who are hurt and are suffering in the world. And only Jesus can fill that empty tomb of loss with his comfort.
0: And in my experience, the time I mourn most is in prayer. Prayer is the time my heart opens up to tell God what's bothering me. Things like my own weaknesses and mistakes, I also mourn over the loss of loved ones and the broken condition and confusion in the world. We need to be vulnerable to say, Lord, here's where my heart is, and I'm looking forward to your solution, as as we know, which is the kingdom to come.
1: And so this, this idea of mourning, this idea of grieving is I don't have an answer, and that's emptiness, and that's an important part of this whole thing is it's beyond me. I don't know what to do. I need something bigger than me to, 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 to enter into this experience. So our emptiness, because of the grief of loss, is real. And like both of you just said, it needs filling. Jesus knew this and gave us practical lessons regarding our, our the, the remedy. Jesus shows us the promised blessing of comfort. Remember, it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, let's look at John chapter 16, verses 19 and 20. And again, this is that same night before his crucifixion.
0: Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, are you deliberating together about this, that I said, a little while you will not see me, and again, a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be
1: turned into joy. So Jesus reminded us of humility here previously. And now, a little bit later that same evening, he's reminding us of grieving. You're going to grieve. You're going to weep. You're going to lament. But your grief will be turned to joy. Again, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted.
2: And there's an aspect of this that's really important. We can see from Bible prophecies that this present evil world isn't going to be renovated. While the physical earth is going to remain, our selfish and evil societies and governments are being torn down, leveled, to make way for God's righteous kingdom. So, blessed are you who mourn now that's having a sympathetic spirit includes our dissatisfaction with present conditions. We're not supposed to cling to the things of this earth. We want to long for the better things coming in God's divine plan for humankind.
1: And that's such a powerful thought that our mourning over the sin of the world isn't going to fix the world right now. It isn't. We're not in position to, nor are we supposed to. What we're supposed to do is be prepared for the reconciliation of the world later. And so it's an emptiness that needs filling. And the only way it can be filled is through the grace of God. And that's why this is is such an important aspect. Grieving is one of these beatitudes, because we need to have that sense of being helpless and hopeless and being empty so we can be filled.
2: So let's talk about how grieving fits into those cumulative steps we've been talking about about the beatitudes now we've talked a lot about the different aspects of mourning you know we're empathetic to the suffering around us we deeply feel our own hurts loss and disappointments but with a foundation that footing that stability of humility there's a part of this mourning that is a repentance for our own misdeeds from an admission of our own constant mistakes and sinfulness even when we try to do better, but we can't. So we realize that Christ's sympathy for our weaknesses in turn helps us to stay tenderhearted towards others. And we're going to need this in order to help reconcile the world of mankind back to God in his future kingdom. You talked about it, Rick, that ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5.18.
1: So again, it comes down to being vulnerable in the grief so that we can be comforted. This is, Jesus was that way, we saw that already. We must be this way. And, and this is built directly upon humility. Now look, all grief needs hope to be able to end. It always does. Even if the hope is, is, is the simple acceptance of that which was lost, okay, I've lost it, I need to move on. Our grief over our sins and losses could easily become inconsolable and overwhelming if there were no hope. Our humility footings that we talked about, those things that hold up the foundation, humility, the humility footings enable us to look up with an expectation of being filled by God's grace when we have been emptied by grief. If we allow ourselves to be vulnerable to our grief, we enable God's comfort through Christ to do its work. But it's not gonna happen until we're vulnerable to the grief so God's comfort can have space to do its work. Let's look at Psalm chapter 40, verses 1 to 3.
0: I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God, Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. Well, Rick and Julie, when I read this scripture preparing for our subject, I had a flashback from years ago when I was broken, empty, and feeling worthless. I pleaded to the Lord to help me, give me direction, and give me purpose for my life. And after several months, he he answered my prayer and put a new song in my mouth. This new song is that Jesus died for me. And for every man, woman, and child from Adam to today, that's the good news. Thank God for his plan of salvation for all. How can I keep from singing?
1: And you know, Jonathan, to get there, you had to be humble first. You had to recognize. And see, that's why these are such cumulative steps. Humility opens the door to recognize the emptiness of grief, which can be comforted through Christ, exactly like you said, in your own life. And here's let's expand that now. We can humbly enter into the grieving experiences of others, of the brotherhood as well. Romans 12, 15 and 16.
0: Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another and do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation.
1: Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. This is a powerful, powerful thought because when you think about it, what this is saying is, Enter into the experience of your brother and your sister. And you think about this if we do that with faith and humility to to really want to help them and encourage, we can actually be God's hand of providence in their life. I mean, think about the privilege of being part of God lifting someone else up in their grief, of being able to comfort them. We say Jesus brings a comfort, and that's exactly right. But he works through his followers as well. We can build others up, and rejoice that God gets the credit, just have to be outside of ourselves, be willing to give to those around us. So the bottom line of the blessedness of those who grieve is, and we've said it many times already, Jesus is the comfort. He is the comfort. Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3, is a powerful description of the comfort that Jesus brings at all kinds of levels.
0: The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified.
1: And you think about the, the replacement here. He's me, he sent me to bind the brokenhearted, to give garlands instead of ashes, and oil of gladness instead of mourning. I mean, there is no greater comfort. But you can't get the comfort unless you're willing to be vulnerable to the pain. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jonathan, becoming one who can be blessed, what do we have?
0: The promised comfort for our grief can bless us when we humbly bring our grief-stricken lives before God through Jesus. Whether our grief is personal and private or related to others, humbly accepting Jesus as our Savior is the healing
1: balm for our pain. It's that humble acceptance, the humility comes first, and then being able to be vulnerable to the grief that can give us the true healing that Jesus brings. Handling grief can feel like an awfully hard second step toward Jesus. I mean, it's only the second step. We need faith in the humility we started with.
0: With humility and the vulnerability of embracing grieving in place, what is the next foundational step?
1: These first two beatitude steps give us a sense of positively embracing a life that has a firm grip on what is real from a godly perspective. This opens the door for becoming a truly teachable disciple of Jesus. And this is where the actions that provoke growth and maturity begin. So the next beatitude is going to be one that builds very firmly upon these previous two. Let's take a look at that, Matthew chapter 5, verse 5.
0: Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. The word here for gentle or meek in the King James Version means mild and is only used three times in the New Testament.
1: So it's not a common word. It's important to not confuse being gentle or meek with being weak. This gentleness also carries the thought of being teachable and of a gentle nature rather than being stubborn and abrasive. So it's a very specific character trait. Blessed are the gentle. The meek, the teachable, for they shall inherit the earth. So again, let's take a very quick look from Moments with the Savior by Ken Geyer at Jesus in his gentleness, in his meekness. He was meek,
3: riding into Jerusalem on the back of a baby donkey, stooping to shoulder the cares of the down and out, with the strength to speak out in defense of an adulterous woman and the strength to remain silent when it came to defending himself.
1: You know, and I think that we don't often think about the strength to remain silent when it came to defending himself. He had such a meekness, such a teachableness about him. It is remarkable. You could spend a lifetime just observing that part of Jesus' own life. Jesus' meekness and gentleness came out at every turn, especially when he was being treated unjustly. And, you know, we talked about being silent Here's one quick example on that when he's being taken the night of his crucifixion or the night before his crucifixion, rather. Matthew 26, verses 55 and 56.
0: At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled.
1: So here he is, this unarmed, passive, loving, caring, compassionate, miracle-working individual being taken like a robber and a thief in the middle of the night with people with weapons. And he, and he confronts them. He says, I've been with you all the time. Just take me. It's okay. There is this incredible gentleness, even though he had all the power. He was gentle.
2: Yeah. Even while Satan is responsible for all the awful things going on around us, the meek are patient, knowing that everything is under the ultimate control of divine providence, and evil is being temporarily permitted just for a time and just for a specific purpose.
1: And Jesus knew that, and Jesus lived that, and he went with the flow that the prophecy showed would be the plan of God. And his gentleness, his teachableness was what brought him such faithfulness.
0: Rick, I like how you said, meek is not weak. Those who are meek fully submit themselves to God through his son, Jesus, but they are bold in the defense of his truth and his way, even if it means enduring persecution for righteousness sake.
1: Yeah. You know, meekness and humility, you have to be careful with those two things because you, you tend to say, well, if I'm going to be meek, I'm going to be really quiet and never going to say anything. That's not what meekness is. Meekness is that, that gentle attitude that is teachable, but that can't stand when it needs to because it understands righteousness. So we do have to be careful about how all of these things go together.
0: How do we apply the sense of being empty as a true disciple of Christ in relation to meekness?
2: Well, we keep using this word teachable, and the meek are willing to be taught better ways and a better life in the school of christ they aren't full of themselves conceited self-centered but they're emptied of all those self-serving traits and they're ready to be taught by the master they're ready to be as i've heard someone say his meek sheep on the earthly pastures now and in the future filled with privilege of bringing the earth and the world of mankind to the harmony with the father but teachable teachable
1: and that doesn't happen overnight that doesn't happen because okay. Tomorrow morning, my resolution for tomorrow is I will be teachable from here on out. It has to be developed, just like the humility, just like understanding and being open to the grieving and the difficulty. That gentle spirit is very unnatural for most of us, so we have to be really careful to enter into it and see, to, uh, see, see that we build our lives towards it. One cannot truly be a disciple if they already know everything. Because a disciple is a learner, a follower. And if you already think you know, you're not following anything but yourself. Unburden yourself before Jesus. That's what he tells us to do in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30.
0: Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my
1: burden is light. You hear the gentleness in Jesus' attitude, and he's saying to you "To you and to I, come to me, and I will take care of you. Take my yoke upon you. Yes, there will be work, work, but I will be with you in that work. My yoke is easy, my burden is light, and I'm going to teach you teachableness. We, in turn, have to empty ourselves, the way Jesus did, of ungodly thoughts. Now, he didn't have ungodly thoughts, but we have to empty ourselves of ungodly thoughts and actions as we serve God. Others. Second Timothy 2, 24 and 25.
0: The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth.
1: It's so easy. Now, this is a scripture that is is speaking directly to those who have responsibility within the true church, and is saying, You must be gentle in correcting those who are in opposition. And it's so tempting to come down on them because you have the authority and the responsibility. But that's not what Jesus taught us. That's not what we're supposed to do. Be patient, be gentle, and so that th- there there is a, a strength in that. And to do that, we have to empty ourselves of our own ego so we can have that gentleness that Christ showed us.
2: So how does being meek fit into the cumulative steps of the Beatitudes?
1: Okay. Cumulative, we're back to building the steps. We had the humility and the grief and now the meekness. First is humility, knowing who you are. We discussed that. A true gentle character and teachable heart are not attainable without humility that reminds us of what we don't know. Next is grieving, the feeling of pain, of loss, and sin.
2: And then we've got being meek. That's, again, teachable, having patient submission to the divine will, That's impossible without humility. It's only going to be developed in those who mourn in the sense of both being sympathetic to others and recognizing just how far we fall short and require the covering of Jesus.
1: And and that's so true. We have to continually understand how far we individually fall short. So put these things together. Once we know and once we feel we can now take the discipleship action of learning, all right? Once we know who we are, once we have that feeling of the grieving of, and, and accept it, now we can take the action that's built upon it. Learning, and that's what this is, teachable, to be teachable, to be gentle is to be able to learn. Learning flourishes when the mind and heart are in lockstep with the teacher. Let's go back to, we used a, a verse from John thirteen fourteen to 17 in the first segment to sort of lay out the idea of being blessed. Let's go back to that verse because it fits really well here. John thirteen fourteen through 17.
0: If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is greater sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them.
1: So this is an action. You are blessed if you do them. You have to put, teachableness is not something you just say, okay, I'm teachable. You have to put it into place. You have to put it into action. And Jesus was, was showing his, his disciples, serve one another. Be teachable, be meek, be gentle, serve one another. This is an important cumulative step in these Beatitudes.
2: So I've got a question. If the followers of Jesus are going to heaven, why does Jesus tell them that the meek will inherit the earth? What happened to inheriting heaven?
1: (laughs) And that's a really good question, because you say, well, this, this can't be for the followers of Jesus, because Jesus says, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. How can this be? Well, think about this for a second. Satan, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, tried to tempt Jesus. Remember, he tried three different ways. One of the ways is he said he would give Jesus the kingdoms of this world. Why did Satan do that? Why did he say, I'll give you the kingdoms of this world if you just bow down to me? Because he knew Jesus came for the kingdoms of this world. So Satan was trying to get out of losing his power by saying, bow to me and you won't have to sacrifice anything, I'll just hand them over. So you have the kingdoms of this world held in the balance Jesus came for them. We can see that prophetically uttered as well in Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 and 8.
0: I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession.
1: So we can see very clearly Jesus came for the, 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 the nations of the earth. He, that's what he came for. His ransom was, and Jonathan, you said it earlier, not just for Adam but for every man, woman, and child who ever lived, the nations of the earth. Now this prophecy that says these nations are your inheritance, speaking of Jesus, this prophecy is in line with the promise given to Abraham that we've quoted so many times that the, to, to bless all the families of the earth. And here's the thing, and Julie, here's the connection. Jesus and his disciples inherited that promise given to Abraham, and thee and I seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. How do we know? Because we look at Galatians 3, 26 through 29.
0: For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise.
2: Okay, I see. So the faithful followers of Jesus receive a heavenly reward like he did, but they get to help him with blessing all the families of the earth. So the meek inherit the earth, in the sense of, if faithful, they get to help reconcile back to God those who have been resurrected on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven.
1: Exactly. And so it puts it all in perspective. So this meekness, this teachableness gives us the ability to inherit the earth because that's the, where the true followers of Jesus go to work. That's where Jesus goes to work. That's what the ransom is about. That's what restitution is about. So this... Middle, this, this, this third beatitude of being meek, being teachable, is so important. It helps us to understand that we have to build ourselves to be in line with Christ. True disciples of Christ are learning now, just Julie, like you said, for the purpose of reconciling those whom Jesus ransomed. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19.
0: Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of
1: reconciliation. We have the responsibility of reconciliation. But that reconciliation isn't now, Julie, you mentioned that earlier, that we're not here to put the pieces of the world back together but we have the ministry of reconciliation so we can be reconcilers later when Jesus calls off from their grave. So the idea of this third beatitude is to be teachable so you can learn what it's like to be like Jesus. So we had the humility at the beginning, that basic, basic footing that says nothing happens before God without humility. We had the vulnerability to the grief of our lives, And now we have this teachableness. These are stepping stones to being truly Christ-like. Jonathan, finally, becoming one who can be blessed. What is it?
0: To be gentle and teachable is to engage in the actions of godly living and true discipleship. Knowing who we are, feeling the pains of this world, and learning and living in Christ are all ingredients of being supremely blessed by God.
1: And that's the key. Those are all ingredients. And folks, here's the thing. We've only just begun here because when you think about it, part two is coming next week. Part two, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. And then blessed are the peacemakers. And then finally, the tests of being blessed, which is blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of Jesus' name. There is so much to these Beatitudes. There's so much that we can learn, that we must learn, that we must put in order if we're going to truly be footstep followers of Jesus. Do not miss next week's episode as we put these Beatitudes all together to say, here is a picture of what our Lord looked like, what he acted like, what he thought, and what he felt. And here's a picture of what we must look like, what we must act like, what we must do, and what we must feel. The Beatitudes frame our lives. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions in this episode and other episodes at Christianquestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channel such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Radio, Google Podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. As we mentioned, coming up next week. Is God Happy With My Attitude? Part 2. Don't miss it.